welcome to More Games Than Time. I'm Lee. I'm Roger. And we've got More Games Than Time. This episode, we've, uh, we're back to our normal schedule. We've got a couple of games that uh, we'll talk about we've been playing. And then we have a discussion afterwards about the phases of building a, a board game collection um, or library, as I mentioned right at the end of the discussion. <laughs> where we're joined by Yart Villain van der Molen. So I have been playing a game we mentioned in passing before, Zia Legends of a Drift System. We have mentioned it, yes. It's a, a game that begins with the letter X. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it is technically soloable um, with the expansion. Right. I, I've not tried the solo mode yet. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, this is basically Roger's eternal quest for a space sandbox game. <laughs> um, I am a fan of Firefly. I continue to be a fan of Firefly. Uh, it, I, Firefly has basically three different classes of scenario. The, the ones mm-hmm. where you have uh, goals you need to achieve or the ones where you have objects you need to manage or just where you have a cash grabs. But, but I think there are about 10, 12 different scenarios in theory with the expansions, but they, they fall roughly into those three categories. The problem is right. for, for, for... And there is still quite a bit of variation, but I have found that in all of them, what you end up doing is getting it, you know, hiring on crew and buying equipment and doing small jobs until you have enough money to get the crew and equipment to do the big jobs mm-hmm. at the end of the game. That, that's oversimplifying, but most Firefly games will feel quite like that. Yeah. And on the face of it, uh, Zia should be even more so because you're, you're going for fame points. You, you set the length of the game by, you know, 10, 15, 20 fame points. You can get mm-hmm. fame points for doing lots of different things. And the first to get to that many wins. So it doesn't have separate scenarios, but at the same time, there are not not only different things you can try, uh, but uh, different things that you will try in response to other players. So, for example, trading will get you a lot of money. But yep. to trade effectively, uh, you need a ship that's relatively um, weak on weapons and maybe even shields because you need all the space for cargo so mm-hmm. if, so, if somebody else decides that they, they're going to go pirate they can they can pounce on you and make and make a lot off destroying you so you okay. so at that point you might decide well okay i'll, I'll switch to a different strategy there, there there's no player knockout your ship can get destroyed but you get another ship right um so is it, i mean uh, it's as soon as you talk about players can um focus on piracy and attack you, then that's instantly making me think it's a, a nasty nasty game with some unpleasant interactions. But what you're describing actually sounds a bit more like a rock, paper, scissors thing, where if somebody's doing that, then you can shift strategy to doing something else, and that negates their piracy focus. Yeah, um, th- there are uh, NPC ships as well, so there will always be a merchant that's going back and forth along the trade routes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to pirate that, you can. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's not completely wiped out. But um, the, the last couple of games I've played, essentially everybody's gone for peaceful, except for um, I think one one player decided to go pirate hunting, right? Because there, there was a random event that produced a second NPC pirate with a with a huge reward. Okay. Uh, so so they armed up and went after them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's. I think it could easily have been multiplayer solitaire. 
Right. Uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a great big world, uh, great big universe. And at the same, you know, maximum five players. And even that, I think many people think, find a bit slow. It, it, it is a big slow game. I think we, mm, without rules explanations, I think we've, we've managed a 15 point game in about an hour per player. Right. Uh, it, it's not a quick thing. But, yeah, the, the, the thing, you can try anything, you can do anything, uh, mm-hmm. but the effectiveness of that in getting you fame points and not getting you blown up will vary a lot depending on what other people are up to, and, and that's something I yeah. rather like. Uh, comparing with Firefly, it's a lot less personal, there aren't any names, you, you don't, you don't hire on crew, you, you just add equipment to your ship, you can upgrade your ship during the game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite mechanically complicated. Uh, the rules are generally fairly consistent, but there are some special cases. Uh, somebody on BGG has put together a summary of base game plus expansion rules all in one document, which I'm very glad because otherwise I'd have had to do it. <laughs> Look, yeah, random events, um, yeah, the, the, the event and other, stuff that comes up during the game decks are quite large. So I've seen a couple of events twice, but they they can be substantial, as as in, you know, right, there's a race being declared. Over the next two turns, pass through as many mission points as you can, and whoever gets most gets the prize. Right. And you can go for that, or you can not go for that. Uh, Or you can just get on with other things while everybody else is distracted by the race. And and what what's the end game trigger? Sorry, you might have said and I missed it. Is uh, it fame, a race to a certain number of points or yeah, fa- or? fame points is is the thing that you're abs- you're overall going for, and you mm-hmm. get them for all sorts of different things. Uh, you, you get them for blowing up another ship. Uh, you get them for uh, sufficient, sufficiently enthusiastic trading. You get them for exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you get one for rolling a natural twenty on on a d twenty, but only right. <laughs> mo- most of the hazards you meet. Um, you roll a d20 and 1 to 10 it does you that much damage and higher than that you're okay okay uh, th- this is I should say a roll and move game right uh, when you, you... Now, is that the first one we featured on this podcast well technically uh, the, the publishers of Rallyman and Rallyman GT insist on calling it a roll and move game which is technically accurate but I don't think is what most people understand by the term. No, I suppose we've um, we've discussed Hero Quest as well, haven't we, which is also roll and move although I don't play it that way. Yeah, and th- th- this you, your equipment is generally rated as a uh, D6 D8 or D12. Mm-hmm. And when you activate an engine for example, you roll the die and that's how many spaces you're going to get to move in that engine activation. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, you get you do get two of those per engine, and if you want to go a long way, you can lo- you can load up multiple engines. Right. Uh, th- there is equipment you can get that will give you a bonus on that. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating. It, it, it's not completely uh, ameliorated, but by the various things. But on the other hand, yeah, everybody's doing it. Yeah. The other thing you get is every ship has uh, what they call an impulse drive, so you you are guaranteed you can move at least this far, even if everything else is broken or blown up or generally not working. So, yeah, it's 
No, not as mechanically elegant as one might like, I think that's fair to say. I, I mean, the fact that you score points for rolling a 20 suggests to me it's more on the... <laughs> More on the theme than the mechanics in terms of its emphasis. I think so. I mean, there, there is there is definitely skill to play rather than just oh well, roll a dice and roll dice and see mm-hmm. who comes comes out best. Um, it doesn't. When one's playing it, it does not feel like a very luck based game, even though there is clearly a lot of luck in it. Yeah, sure. I yes, if if you were if you are the sort of player who really likes to plan out right, I'm going to do this and this and this. And the die rolls are, are not going in my favour. That could be quite frustrating. Yeah, and conversely, I suppose if you're a player that likes to plan things out to the umpteenth degree, and somebody keeps rolling a bunch of natural twenties all game, that's going to upset you as well. <laughs> yeah, but um, what I haven't seen, and in Firefly, you can get the situation where somebody takes a huge chance on something and succeeds and mm-hmm. will often then win because they they have made made that step up to a ne- next resource level. Yeah. Uh if they had failed then they would effectively have been out of the game. I haven't seen that happen in Zia yet. It may well be that it's possible from some combination I haven't observed. Mhm. But um yeah. No. <laughs> okay, so same thing I say about Firefly really. It, it it's not a marvel of mechanical elegance. I think I think it's probably in purely mechanical terms, probably a better game than Firefly. Um, I continue to enjoy them both. And one I've been playing quite a lot. Also, my, my, one of my local friends who got very irked by the way you can be completely wiped out in Firefly <laughs> is, is enjoying this. So well, That's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Zia Legends of a Drift System by Cody Miller. Very good. Um, yeah, he, he's also um, designed Tavarua and Aridia the Paths We Dare Tread, neither of which I've played. Okay, I have been playing Fungi, or Morels, as it's also known. I don't, Ooh. forgive me, I don't think we've spoken about this before on the podcast, have we? I don't think we have. I, I have no. played it once uh, at a convention, and I was very okay. tired, but I think I enjoyed it. This is by... I'm going to say Brent Povis, that's how it's spelt. However, I believe he's French, which would suggest it's Brent Povis. Yeah, so this is a a two-player only game, um, at least in its original form. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, It's been released, I think, originally perhaps under the name of Morels. It was then picked up by Pegasus Spieler, who published it under the name of Fungi, and then got re-released a couple of times since, again, under its original name of Morels. Um, still the same game, um, different art in the Fungi and Morels editions, and I think the original version, which was a, a Kickstarter self-published game, had some hand-whittled wooden sticks in it of components, <laughs> um, which are missing from uh, from the Pegasus Spieler version. You, you, just get, uh, you just get cards for your sticks there. It's essentially a card game. Um, yeah, I've certainly seen Pegasus do a lot in terms of multi-use cards. I mean, Port Royal. Well, I mean, example. they're not even multi, multi-use cards. So, mm. um, I, I happen to quite like the art in the Fungi version. A lot of people prefer it in the Morels version. Morels is more of a, a wishy-washy watercolour version. <laughs> um, Fungi is still attractive, but perhaps slightly more like what you might see in a, a mushroom identification 
book from the 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, later on in this episode, you're going to talk about how you quite like pure games. This is a very pure set collection game. Yeah. Um, you're dealt a hand of cards at the start of the game. The rest of the cards all get shuffled up and put into a pile, which is then laid out uh, eight cards drawn into a row. The theme of the game, if you want to use the word theme as opposed to setting, <laughs> is that you are going through on a walk through the woods um, to pick mushrooms for your supper or to sell at market, I think it is, actually, in a very French way. Um, well, there, there are frying pans involved. There are. We'll, we'll come back to them in a moment. Um, so on on those eight cards, the two at the end of the row, you can grab for free. They're considered to be right next to the path you're walking on. They're easily accessible. You can also spend sticks to reach off the path mm-hmm. and grab the cards from higher up that row. Okay? Um, at the end of your turn, the card at the end of the row, one of those two that you didn't take, will cycle off and the cards will cycle through the deck. So the game runs until that deck of cards runs out. Yeah. You're building up sets of mushrooms, um, which are different values. Um, you know, your, your common mushrooms are worth the least points. Morels, of course, are the most expensive. Mm. Um, and then, you know, penny buns are, are good. Chicken of the woods is uh, sort of a, a middling or hen of the woods, I think we call it. <laughs> I, I've always said hen of the woods, but in this game, they're called chicken of the woods. Right, maybe a um, translation thing, who knows? Uh, who knows? It might be a literal translation, as you say. Um, so they're all worth differing points. You can cook them up with a frying pan. You need to have a frying pan to play these sets of cards down in front of you. Once you've cooked them with your frying pan and laid them down in front of you, you cannot then add to them. Hmm. So there's this pressure, because you've got a, a limit of how many cards you can hold in your hand. You, I've got, particularly in the, the lower value cards where there's more of them, you think, you know, I've got a certain number I could play now. Do I hold on to them and try and score a bigger pan mm. of, uh, of points? Or do I just play them now and effectively you know, be able to acquire more cards into my hand before I have to cook again? Yeah. Because that's your turn that you're doing that on. Um, as well as the mushrooms, there also exist cards for butter and for cider. <laughs> in themselves, you can't build up sets of them, but you can add them to a pan to increase the points value of those mushrooms that you're cooking with, because obviously they're more flavourful. But on the other hand, that's taken up slots in your hand that you could have exactly. put more cards into. Exactly. Um, that's sort of the general gist of the game. I mentioned that as published originally, there weren't solo rules. It was a two-player only game. Um, when I first got it, I thought it was eminently solo soloable. I devised my own solo rules for it, which are available on Board Game Geek. Mm. Around that same time, it went, I think, back to Kickstarter for an expansion. I've never played the expansion. I don't know what's in it. <laughs> um but they also, at that point, decided that, yes, you could play it solo. And they adopted... I was a bit late in publishing my rules onto Board Game Geek. <laughs> <laughs> they adopted the only solo rules that were on Board Game Geek, which were written by... Um, I think he's called Solo Play. We've discussed him before. 
Uh, so it's what of, often gets quite a lot of variation from what one thinks of as the core of the gameplay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so his rules uh, in subsequent editions of the games with that expansion as uh, one player rules. Um, there are other variants on Board Game Geek as well as you know. I think people have come up with some more since the ones that I did as well. Mm. So there are different ways to play it solo. Um, but originally it was a two player game, and certainly you can't play it higher player counts than two. So from the play I had, I remember a um, there was a card that you didn't want to take because it was it was a bad mushroom of some sort. Is that is that perhaps from the expansion? There, there is, yeah. There's um, a toadstool effectively right, yeah. um, in the game, which yeah is negative points. You don't want to be cooking with that. Um, there are also bizarrely night mushrooms. <laughs> so e- each mushroom, um, be it a, a porcini or Hand of the Woods, whatever it is, um, also has one night version of it, mm-hmm. um, which, for whatever reason, is worth more points when you cook with it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, that's thematically, I don't think there's anything behind that at all. It's just you know, an, an extra interesting thing um, for, for playing the game, I suppose. Um, I think when, as far as I remember, there's... Uh, there, the normal deck of cards has some knight cards in them. Mm. If you grab a knight card, then you draw a card off the knight deck, and that's when you find out what mushroom it is that you've drawn. Right. So there's a bit of chance in there. You don't know necessarily what you're getting at that point. And you do still want to make it a set with the other yeah. ones of its type. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I played it once. I, as I say, I, it, was, it was the end of a long day at a convention, and I, I did enjoy it. it it's... Um, it's, it, it's it, it charming. Didn't leap out at me and say, "I want to buy this," the way some games have. No, it's it's not a loud, shouty game. It's yeah. charming. It's pleasant. It's hmm. a pure focus set collection game that is a great couples game. Also, for two, a great sort of gateway game. Hmm. Um, I've I've played this with non gamers and they've really enjoyed it. it. It's not complicated. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of two-player games are very much um, versus. You know, I, I, I am doing the thing directly against you. Yeah, I think there is a tradition of two-player games um, being sort of uh, chess-like, effectively, as you say, where you're battling each other directly. Whereas presumably um, in this, you know, I can take a card that you wanted. but, but and that's... that's about as much as it goes to, to harming the other player, which yeah, is that... what makes it a nice couples game, as I say. That not, not direct you... conflict. Yeah, you can play it together without feeling like by doing better you're hurting the other person deliberately. Mm. Yeah, you, you. Now that you've reminded me of it, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe I, maybe I will pick this up at some point. <laughs> and it's a nice small box. So. Yeah, which is the other thing it's got going for it. It's um, yeah, you can. <laughs> I was about to say you can never have too many small box games. I mean, maybe maybe that's not true, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, my, my it's small nice box... to have that choice without it taking up too much space. My small box games live in a series of plastic crates, which indeed originally had mushrooms in them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, this actually isn't the the game I played most recently about collecting mushrooms. Uh, oh, really? Um, I'm, I'm I know there has been one published since. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, I. I just a couple of days ago, played uh, Wonder Woods, which is right. it's a loose theme, but you've got yeah. four sorts of mushroom, and there are for each of them four prices it can have. 
one of those price cards is under that particular mushroom and, you, and nobody can see it and the, the others are distributed among the players so you, you have mm-hmm. limited information about what prices it isn't and therefore you decide yeah. which ones you're going to take rather than letting the other guy have them. It's it's all a bit strange but quite fun. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, is, so is, was, is uh, collecting mushrooms a thing still people, people still do? It, 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 it became a bit trendy 10 years or so ago, didn't yeah. it? In this country at least. I mean, uh, when, yeah, when so, I was a kid, it was all you mustn't do this. Though, though the mushrooms are very the, much exactly yeah, like much the nice that. ones that will kill you. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the big thing in this country. You had the um, the government warnings against going out and picking mushrooms, which was very different to Italy, France. Mm. But yes, that's fungi or morels um, by Brampo V, published by Pegasus Spieler and some other companies. <laughs> And I have recently played a couple of games of Heat, Pedal to the Metal. Ah, I'm very interested in this game, Roger, as I think you know. Yeah, well, I, I, insofar as I have a specialisation, it seems to be becoming racing games, uh, which yes. is not something yes. I expected. You're, you're but, my, my go-to person now for racing games. But a lot of the games I enjoy seem to be that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was getting some, some very mixed uh, views on this. I mean, it, the the general attitude is positive, but some people were saying it feels like Flamrouge version two, mm-hmm. uh, and it is by the same designers. Yeah. Other people were saying no, no, it's not really like that at all. And I, I think I'm still having now played it. I think I'm starting to see what's going on. You right. do start with a standard deck, at mm-hmm. least in, in the base game. Uh, the card play is quite similar. You you will play some cards from your hand, but the the cards you play are not consumed. They go to the discard pile. And right. they will eventually get shuffled. Everything will eventually get shuffled back into your system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't you don't have the thing that you have in Flamme Rouge of a a meaningful race has to be a particular length so that you have to make the hard decisions about cards. Yeah, uh, this could be what whatever length you set it to. Um, and that, that that is just in the core game because with the various expansion modules, you can say effectively draft draft in other cards to replace the standard upgrades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I I want to be able to do lots of lots of this and not so much of that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and you can fine tune things a bit. I apart from that, it it is it it doesn't feel like a racing game because the corners are weird. Um, <laughs> the 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 tracks are basically um, in a. In an abstracted sense, it's essentially what matters is how far it is until the next corner and what the speed limit on that corner is. Because the... How, how does that compare, I'm going to throw two games at you, to Flamme Rouge and to, um, Downforce? Okay, Flamme Rouge effectively doesn't have corners at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the track curves, but it, but it doesn't have any effect on the gameplay. Mm. Uh, downforce, it sort of does have corners, but that's mostly in terms of the layout of the grid. Yeah. And what, what, you know, you want to go along the inside because it's fewer spaces, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there um, can be pinch points there as well, such that you can get, play, get to a corner first, play low value cards and let everybody bunch up behind you. Yeah. Uh, th- this doesn't have that. Apart from anything else, um, like Flamme Rouge, if a sp- if you- you've got two um, player spaces per spot on the track, 
Mm-hmm. And if you if your car coming from behind goes further than that, well, you can just jump straight over them, no problem. Right. Uh, if if you would land on it, then you have to land in the space behind. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is slipstreaming in this, but uh, because because everybody's moving one at a time rather than all at once, as in Flamme Rouge, it applies instantly. So if as you finish your move, you are next to or immediately behind another car, you can choose right. to jump on two further spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way the way the corners are done, and I, I'm used to something like Rallyman. Running Man GT, where yeah. the 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 speed limit on the corner is the the speed you are using at the instant you go through that corner, mm-hmm. uh, and this it's the total number of spaces you have moved in the move that takes you over the corner line. Right. So the the, the simple approach is to try try make a really long move and stop just before it. Yeah. Um. And then move, move slowly across it, and then accelerate away. Uh, yeah. And and you can you can start getting more subtle than that, but that that's the core of it. I mean, that sounds like how you drive round a corner. Yeah, but but the granularity <laughs> of the moves is quite large. I mean, if, if you're if you're in a high gear, uh, okay. So I should talk about the gears. Mm. Uh, you decide you have four gears. Mm-hmm. At the, and at the start of your turn, you you can move up or down one free of charge. Right. Uh, two by taking a heat, which is essentially a junk card that clogs up your hand. Right. And the gear you choose determines the number of cards you will play. Mm-hmm. You must play that many cards. Right. So you you might think oh well you know I, I will stay in a high gear and just play low value cards but you may not have low value cards yeah. available i mean th- there's a zero in in the in the standard starting deck right which is very handy if you want to stay in a high gear going through a, a, a tight corner mm-hmm. um but it may not be there when you want it yeah i think it's 15 ish cards to start with something right. like that okay so it's not a huge deck, and taking heat into it is going to start to clog it quite quickly. Then, as you cycle through, yeah, uh, there, there are two sorts of junk cards. In fact, there's heat, which you can't mm-hmm. play, but if you're in a low gear, you you can discard back to the back to your stock. Right. Uh, oh yeah, if you go through a corner too fast, the only penalty is that you take more heat. Right. If you run out of heat, uh, you have I think six ish cards to start with, but I think that varies with the track. Uh, if if you run out of it um, and you you have to put put more in, then you then you spin out and crash, right? And um, d- dump all the heat and restart from zero. Okay, so that's six heat cards per player, I assume. Yeah, the the yeah. the cards don't move around between players at all. Yeah. So again, very much like Flam Rouge in that respect. You also get stress cards, which are essentially a momentary lapse of concentration, and. Right. Again, you can't just yeah. With, with a normal gear card, you can just choose not to play it and dump it, dump it at the end of the turn if you don't want it, or keep it to the next turn. Uh, with heat, you you can only get it out of your hand by going slowly. With stress, the only way you get it out of your hand normally is by playing it. Mm-hmm. And when you play it, you turn over cards from the top of your deck until you get a one to four gear card and then a uh, speed card and then move that far. Right. Which is great if you've got a nice long straight ahead of you and you don't really care how far you go, but, but you, you then take a risk of 
how how close am I going to allow myself to get to this corner? Surely I'm not going to get a four on this on this stress card, so I so I can assume I'm going to come up just just short of it, or well, maybe yeah. I am. So so that's that's quite fun, and, and that's that's pretty much the the core game, and that they recommend this really only for your first game. Um, it, it's very easy to pick up. Some of the iconography is not entirely clear, mm-hmm. um, but that that was on a. I, I'm sitting in a board I mean, game this, cafe this is trying what to work Days it out. of Wonder used to do, isn't it? They used to yeah. do a, a well-produced, well-play-tested gateway game every year. So th- this is definitely a um, new player accessible game. I'm, yeah. Mm, we, we, we'll probably talk in, in, in future about gateway games. I, I think it would have <laughs> at least some lasting appeal. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I am definitely thinking I would really like to buy this, but I already have Flam Rouge and I already have Rally Man GT. Yeah. And frankly, if I were looking at both on the shelf, I would probably rather play Rally Man GT than this. But there's the question of how, you know, that, that's not a game I would necessarily throw at a new, new board gamer. But I mean, the real question, Roger, is when would you choose to play this over Lemminger? <laughs> <laughs> That, that that's hard, yeah. <laughs> I think Lemminger is the only game I, I have played where it, every time I have got it out and played it with people, they have they have said, "Yes, this is great." No, <laughs> nobody has ever not not enjoyed a game of it that I that I remember. High or, praise. Or maybe they hid it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I, I'm just going to say that there are three expansion modules so one, one is the right. upgrade so you can decide to specialize your car into particular it's, it's mm-hmm. not very specialized you still have your standard one to four gear cards as yeah. well but that, that's there um there's a system for uh automated enemy uh opposition cars right okay so this would be where the solo game comes in is it yeah so you, so you can play on a full track however many players you have or don't have Mm-hmm. Uh, that that I haven't tried yet, but but uh, I'm told I'm told it's pretty easy to manage, right? Which I think is we, we've said before is one of the crucial things about a solo system. You don't want to be making lots of decisions about it. Ab- absolutely, and I, I'm I'm guessing that I'm guessing the same way probably most people are guessing that it's similar to the solo system in Flam Rouge. Uh, probably, I, I say I I've not played it yeah. yet, so I, I don't really want to say. The the other thing is. Um, I think the press and championship thing is, is interlinked, but basically there, there are particular spots on the track where the press are, and that's right, where, okay. that's where you want to be looking good playing the high value cards. <laughs> and, it, and if you do, you get a bonus. It reminds me, I might have told you this before, back when I used to do some rally driving. Um, so the World Cup rally in two thousand and. One, I think, two thousand one or two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a three-week marathon rally. We'd been down into the Sahara. We were coming back up through Portugal, right? And you may not know this. Some listeners might. There's um, in on the rally Portugal. There is a famous jump. Okay. We had a special stage which was two minutes long over <laughs> that jump, <laughs> and. All of the cameras were there, ready for that jump. And I looked at it and I thought, you've got you know, 50 cars here, which have been driven hard for two and a half weeks. And a lot of them are teetering on the edge of collapse. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason you're making us go over this jump. <laughs> <laughs> 
I drove over it really slowly. <laughs> and then the next car that came over it was a, it was a Peugeot 205, which did exactly what the organisers wanted them to do, floored it came down mm. nose first, landed on the radiator, and that was it. them out after two and a half weeks of driving. Yeah. So, yeah, I do understand this. You want to look good in front of the cameras. <laughs> it's a trap. Yeah, so so the game is giving you an actual incentive to do that. And, of course, you could, you could do the standard thing. You could do in any race game of have a season and a championship and that, that you know, determined grid order from that and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if I didn't already have Runny Man, <laughs> thanks, Paul, for introducing <laughs> me to it, uh, I, I, I would be all over this as it is. Oh, the, the other thing is, and I, I can see this as both a good decision from, from the novice gamer point of view and a moneymaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tracks are individual boards. So you have one board, which is the USA track on one side and the Italy track on the other. Uh, right. Standard thing. They can't use the actual racetrack names because those, those are owned by the yeah. racetrack yeah. firms. Um, which, on the one hand, means, yeah, I get the board out, I unfold it, the track is set up, we're ready to play. Yeah. On the other hand, it means they're going to be track expansions. Yeah, of course of, they're going to be course. track expansions. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, I mean, that's fairly standard for for most racing games, I think. Yeah, and w- I, I love the variability of the Rally Man, um, the mm-hmm. new Holy Grail Games Rally Man series, where you, you have the, the hex tiles and you can arrange them, but I, I, I would admit it, it can take a while to set up. Yeah. I, I try to, you know, say right. I'm I'm at a convention. I'm I'm sitting around. I'm going to set up set up a Rally Man track, and then I'm going to start trying mm-hmm. to persuade people to come and play it. Yeah, no, the 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 fixed board makes setup much quicker, and it increases accessibility to the game. Mm. Um, you see the same things with uh, with dungeon crawlers. If you've got a board that folds out, yeah, it's much easier to set up than using tiles. And as I say, it increases the accessibility to the game when we're talking about gateway games that people that aren't heavily into the hobby can open the box, put the board out, and they're ready to go. Mm. And although, yeah, it's quite a nice inlay too. You, you've got the standard starting. It's basically a series of card wells. Right. Um, the cards held vertically, so you've got your standard starting thing for each each player mm. and then the, the standard upgrades and then the other things for other expansions. Mm-hmm. That's all very neatly done. Um yeah, I think because the, again, in abstracted terms, the tracks are relatively simple. What all that really matters is you've got 20 spaces to a speed three corner and then 16 spaces to a speed seven corner or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a reasonable decision. You, you, you don't have the complexity that you do on, uh, you know, a rally man track might have six or seven corners on the lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this is more likely to have about three. Right. Uh, but the effect of the corner is felt for longer because you have the, the, the move on which you're approaching it and then the move on which you're crossing it and then the move on which sure. you're getting away again and, and, and then you're approaching the next corner. Is a race one lap or do you do multiple laps? Um, it's variable. The standard for the USA track is two laps. Uh, right. they, they basically have recommended settings for each track printed on the track mm-hmm. board. Um, there is no no reason you can't change that, but... Again, the, the, this is, I think, good noob-friendliness, noob as in, yeah. I've just got this game, I don't really know this particular track, I'll use the standard settings, and then once I've played, maybe I've played it a few times on that, and I'll think, okay, it would be fun to do an, a longer race. Yeah. So... That's, yeah, so that's nice, sort of scales up a bit. Yeah, I, I'm... Th- this is, as you say, published by Days of Wonder. Um, mm-hmm. 
they are part of the whole Asmodee thing now, which <laughs> leaves me feeling I don't really want to buy it new. But I'm probably going to. <laughs> so, heat pedal to the metal, Asgard and Granarud, Daniel Skjold Peterson. Excellent. Roger, I understand you have a bit of an understanding of history. Very amateur. Uh, if my school history teachers could could hear you say that, they would they would be disbelieving. Well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm about to. <laughs> I got interested after I'd left school and it wasn't boring anymore. <laughs> if, if I was to say to you there was a, a region of the world that was cold and opened up through primarily fur trade, what is there anything that leaps to mind? Um, Northern Russia. Scandinavia to some extent, Alaska. I mean, the first one that comes to the reason I was first one that comes to me is Canada and uh, the Hudson Bay Company. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was what I was familiar with, and there was a game I think called the Hudson Bay Fur Trading Company, um, which was meant to be coming to Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It still hasn't, as far as I know. Right. But at the same time that that started to circulate in my consciousness awareness um there was another game appeared called stroganoff Mm -hmm. and this is the russia you're talking about but it's remarkably similar history to the hudson bay fur trading company right um the stroganoffs themselves were a mercantile family they were given licenses to go and hunt furs by the russian czars in the 16th century Mm -hmm. basically in order to conquer siberia for them yeah, because the, the more fur you take out of it, the, few, the fewer bears and things there are to kill the settlers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I have been playing Stroganoff, which uh, you know principally as a game you had to collect for me from Essen last year. Yeah, but compared with some of the some of the things people asked me to pick up, it, it was really quite painless. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the, they actually the had it. The starter experience was less painless to me. I was meant to collect it from Essen the previous year. Yeah. Um, and then because of COVID, it got delayed on the boats and yeah. I was given the choice between paying extra for shipping um, or leaving it a year to get it. Sure. So I left it a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm considerably behind the times in playing it, but I think it was worth the wait. Um, the most notable thing about it that will draw most people about it is the artwork. It is stunning to look at. It's got mm-hmm. a beautiful piece of art on the cover which is followed through um, in the game itself. Something, when it was first on Kickstarter, a lot of people drew comparisons with Parks, which I think is a game we've talked about before on the on the podcast. Hmm. Um, and that comparison uh, is, is drawn with a, a track of landscape tiles um, across the centre of the board, and every one of those tiles has a unique piece of art with it. Mm, yeah, I'm just looking at some pictures now. That, and, I mean, it, it, it's pastoral and natural landscapes and things, but it's very nicely done. It is. I mean, it, during the Kickstarter campaign, they actually you know, one of the extras you could buy was packs of art prints with art from the game, which I think tells you something about the, the confidence and the reception of the art. Mm. Um. So, so thematically, you're you're playing as a mercantile family that's um, opening up Siberia through fur trading. Um, you are employing Cossacks to go out and collect these furs for you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, on each turn, the, the, the game is divided into four years. Each year is divided into four seasons. Yeah. Um, three of those seasons, spring, summer, autumn, you'll be doing the same thing. And that is between two and three actions. Um, your first action is a basic action, which will normally be moving your Cossack on those uh, landscape tiles. So it, look, okay. it looks as if you might have sort of four or five or six maybe in play. Uh, no, there are, hold on, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve at any one time. Okay. Um, the first seven, I think, are starting tiles, so they'll be present in every game, albeit randomly ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of them come from a, a big stack, and again, are randomly shuffled and placed in the game as you go along. Um, each of those tiles has a number of furs on them. Of furs animals, if you like. You're going to be killing the animals to get the fur, and yeah. some people have complained about the game because of that as a theme. Yeah, well, and so, certainly if this is a thing you're not particularly happy about, that this is not going to be a game for you. I mean, for that um, matter, the history of the Cossacks is not exactly lacking in... Absolutely. I completely get that. And uh, as somebody that will not play certain games because of the history that's involved, um, I will not play any whale hunting games. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, call it inconsistency, call it hypocrisy, whatever else, I'm happy to play this game. As far um, as I'm concerned, this, this is a personal choice thing. Yeah, and I think the history of it, as I say, I was aware of the Hudson Bay Company. I wasn't aware of this particular part of history. Hmm. The art appealed to me, and the landscape also appealed to me as that part of the world. It's similarity to Mongolia, which is a special part of the world to me that I've spent a lot of time in. Yeah. Um, so each of those landscape tiles has got a number of fur tiles on it. Um, when you move your Cossack onto one of those tiles, you can immediately claim one of those furs, kill the animal, however you want to phrase it, mm-hmm. um, for free. You can also, so the, the top one I should say is free. You can also pay to go down and take a more valuable fur. Yeah. And value in this instance is, um, misleading i might say (laughs) um and then you can also pay to do that a second time if you wish again the top one would be free if you want to go down it would cost more yeah okay um your movement you can move up to two tiles in either direction so unlike parks you're not restricted in only moving east you can move west as well yeah um your movement is two for free and then you can pay to move further Paying... Paying horses. Right. So there's um, a few different currencies in the game. Horses being one. um, Coins being the other one. and Well, being the other one. Coins being another one. And furs being the the most Mm -hmm. important. Yeah. Um, Coins effectively... No, they don't add as a wild. They can make a fur wild. Right. So you, you can... So I said, where I said values of furs are misleading, (laughs) you're trying to build up sets. Right. It's not necessarily that the most valuable set is going to get you the best thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, But you you can manipulate that in various other ways. 
you can manipulate it in various other ways. So you can use um, a coin alongside any fur to make it wild. In other words, I can put it into my set of other furs. But the way you're trying to build up these sets, they don't themselves score you points. You have to spend those furs during the game. Mm -hmm. Um, You will be using them principally. So one of the other... So I said that was a basic action, moving to the landscape. So other basic actions that you can do, um, including visiting the market and other things, they're generally, as you would expect, less valuable than an advanced action. Mm -hmm. So... Your second, so that your first um, thing you'll do in your turn in any season is a basic action. The second is either another basic action or an advanced action. Advanced actions include visiting the local village, visiting the local gear or yurt camp, um, claiming the landscape tile you're on, which is cheaper if somebody's already hunted all the furs from it, mm-hmm. and claiming a, a czar's wish. So the Tsar's wishes are where you're going to spend your furs. They might want four red deer furs, for example. So in in effect, order fulfilment. Yes, exactly. They are going to score you points. The other way you're going to spend furs is in claiming those landscape tiles, which again will score you points. Mm -hmm. Um, Often the Tsar's wishes, as well as scoring you points, come with an ongoing power that will help you through the game. Yeah. It might be an extra action. It might be that you'll score extra points at the end, but that they'll always have this extra thing with them. So this is why I say the more valuable furs are not necessarily more valuable because it, it depends how you spend them. Yeah. And, and, and it's so- not necessarily that three bear furs is going to get you something better than five polecat furs. So as it, an example, so it might consistently get you more of a particular sort of points, but the other things that come along with it will change the rest of the game. Yeah, it, it's exactly. Um, I mean, so the, your cheaper furs are more abundant. You can build up sets of them more easily. But I'm not, I haven't seen it yet that I'm always saying, oh, I've got to have the bears, the lynx, the red deer. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, on your turn, you can spend some furs to either do a second basic action or a second advanced action. So you've got two to three actions, the first two or three, yeah. that you can do on your turn. Okay? So that's spring, summer, autumn. Winter, um, you will gain some income in the form of horses. You will also get to te- spin tales, sing songs <laughs> about the adventures you've had in the other three seasons. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you will... One of the things you will be acquiring other than horses and furs and money is song points. You'll move up the song track during spring, summer, autumn. At the end of winter or during winter, you will then get to spend some of those song points to acquire more points or other bonuses. Right. Okay. So it sounds as if there's a lot of um, effective resource conversion going on. There's a lot of resource conversion going on. Um, your, it's the usual thing of um, you know. There's a single points track. Player with the most points wins at the end of the four years. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, primarily you're interested in getting furs, which you will then trade into points or bonuses. Um, 
there are other ways you can do it as well. You can just concentrate on that song track, ignore the czar's wishes. You can just concentrate on buying landscape tiles, ignore the czar's wishes. But at some point, you're going to be wanting to hunt and trade first. So you, you've got a few things you can do, but a lot of them have elements in common. Yeah, and yeah. it, it, it's it is all interlinked. I think um, I have seen some discussion on Board Game Geek that um, that that song track is overpowered. Mm-hmm. That if you really concentrate on hitting that, that should be your your priority. I've only I've played fewer than half a dozen times so far, and I've only played solo. Yeah, I'll come to the side of the solo works in a moment. Um, it hasn't been my experience necessarily that that's true. Uh, let's say you take that with a grain of salt if you want. I haven't played multiplayer. Maybe that would be different. Um, but it's it's, it's a well balanced game. It's not. I'd, I'd say it's a medium weight euro. Mm-hmm. It's not too complex. Um, there yeah, are a BGG lot of busy calls state. it three point something out of five. Yeah, that that's reasonable. Um, it's it's something we get onto in the discussion in this episode. I think you know that where you bring lots of different mechanisms together. It's verging towards that kind of bloat. It's not pure as as well as just saying Fungi is a pure set collection game. Hmm. It's not a pure set collection game, even though set collection is one of the major things you're doing. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, the solo rules, it ha- it comes with uh, an Automa deck. It's easy to manage. On your ter- it turn, the cards are double-sided. One side concerns movement of the Cossack on that landscape tile track. Mm-hmm. One set concerns its... Um, two basic actions or two actions, basic and advanced actions that it's going to do. Yep. It will always do three actions on its turn. The first one will always be movement, which as I said is generally what your basic action, first basic mm-hmm. action will be anyway. And then it will always do two other actions as well. But, but the cards give it a certain amount of unpredictability. Yes. And it's easy to manage. You just do what it says on the cards once you learn the iconography. Always learn the iconography. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I did like about this Often my criticism of Automa is that they're too random and I don't feel like I'm competing against the human player. Um, Sometimes I've seen systems that the last action taken will influence the next action taken for the AI. Mm -hmm. This does something a lot simpler, which I really liked and it surprised me. Maybe it probably has been done before, I just haven't seen it in games that I've played. Um. The deck of AI cards, of Automa cards, is larger than the number used in any game. Yeah. And in the rule books for it, it says take out the C cards. They've all, I think the letters A to F, take out the C cards, which will be five cards, and the AI will now focus on these two things. Mm-hmm. Which to me better simulates playing against an opponent. You can say, oh, I know they're going after the Tsar's wishes in this game. I know they're trying to hit the song track. Whatever it is that they're focused on, you've got some idea. And they're not going to be doing that every turn. There is still randomness in what they're doing. But it biases them towards that strategy. Exactly. Yeah. So I really liked that. I thought that was a nice, simple way of of lending a bit more personality and predictability to what the AI is doing. Mm. Without being a huge administrative burden. Exactly, yeah. It's, um, it's it's not adding to that in any way. It's exactly the same as if it was random. You've just got that, take f- say, take five cards out during setup, and then that's it. Mm. 
Um, generally, I think plays have taken me about 90 minutes solo. So it's not a quick game. Yeah. Um, I think a large amount of that is um, analysis paralysis, for want of a better phrase. If I was playing it regularly, I'd probably get it down to an hour. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't matter. When, I, when I'm playing solo, at least some of the fun is being able to say, OK, I don't have any opponent breathing down my neck. I can give it a lot of thought and decide which of these things I actually want to do. Yeah. So, And I think that, that 90 minutes more or less includes setup and take down time as well. Hmm. So I think yeah, the, the the time suggested on the box for plays is probably accurate. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's uh, that's Stroganoff by Andreas Stedding, published by Game Brewer. If you're looking, I can see you're looking at your computer now. If you're looking up Andreas Stedding, he's um, done several other highly regarded games. Oh, well known, yeah. Uh, I'm just having trouble calling any of them actually to mind. Uh, Gugong was one. I think when Stroganoff was first announced, there was a, again a few threads on board gaming people saying, "Oh, this was what Gugong was meant to be," as if it was um, somehow got Gugong got watered down by the publisher. I think that got refuted. <laughs> um, well, the Stafford Dynasty, I've heard a lot of thing, good things about, and of course, Hansa Teutonica. So. Yeah, exactly. Easy design. It's been around a long time and done a lot of well-regarded games. So, joining us this week is Jaap Willem van der Molen, who uh, will be well known to some members of the One Player Guild on Board Game Geek as JW. Um, can also be found writing about Kickstarters. Would that be a, a fair description? On... Well, mostly, Take it uh... ahead, Jaap Willem. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. <laughs> and um, uh, Well... With a friend, Athena, I've got a website, Solitaire Times. She mostly announce, uh, cr- announces the crowdfunding uh, projects, and I put some uh, uh, other blog posts on it, like the games I played and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Athena's I... joined us previously. We'd love mm-hmm. to have her back again at some point. Hmm. Yes, I, so... I, I, I recommend Solitaire Times. Absolutely. It, yeah, com- combination of news about stuff and it's actually fun to read. Yes, well, thank you. Yeah, this is, this is what I <laughs> want. Thank you. <laughs> so our topic this time, the reason we've asked Yap Villamon is to uh, to talk about the phases of, I'm going to say building a board game collection, even though I absolutely detest the word collection in this sense. <laughs> Yeah, the, um, this is a thing that occurred to me a while back. Um, yeah. There do seem to be, for many people, consistent phases, starting from, you know, oh, wow, the, board gaming is huge, I'm going to buy everything, uh, and then gradually passing on. I, I'm, I'm wondering mm. if uh, our experiences have been the same, if, if there are things we've seen. Uh, for, for me, at least, the, the, the thing, the classic error that a lot of people seem to make is... I played this game at the local group, and I really liked it, so now I'm going to buy it. But then <laughs> the only people I'm going to play it with are at the local group, and they already own it anyway. They already have a copy, yeah. 
I think when I first got found a board game group, I had something similar, I suppose. I remember there was one game, um, it was Evolution. The mm. first time I played Evolution, I had a great time and I thought, this is brilliant. And I really wanted to buy it. I didn't, largely because it didn't have solo rules. And I knew that, as you say, there was a copy of the group and I wouldn't be playing it with um, either at home, either with just solo or with... Uh, with Danny, my partner, as a two-player game, as a couples game, I couldn't see that working too well. I thought it would be a bit nasty. Mm. Yeah, well, for years I didn't have a board game board game uh, group, so I mainly played solo. Mm. So it's a bit different then, because um, if you want to play a game, you'll have to buy it. Uh, yeah, we don't have a games library either. So I, I found is is as you know. Yeah, most of my plays are solo, and I, I found that um, the the maths trades on Board Game Geek were were useful for sort of cycling through a collection. That mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I you can make that investment to buy a board game once, play it a few times, decide maybe it's not the one you want, and then move it on and swap it for another. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've certainly found I, I have apparently a lot of unpopular games that I don't want anymore, but the ones that are soloable are much more likely to get taken in a maths trade than the ones that aren't. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, have, have either of you ever sort of put a, a mental limit on the, the size of your collection? And if so, has that changed over time? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> um well, um, I, I started buying board games again um, when my wife and I got together, so mm-hmm. 25 years ago. We liked uh, two-player games. And, uh, and over the years, I think, uh, in those 25 years, we, we got close to 100 board games. Right. And... Um, when I started playing solo, because I wanted to play more than she did, mm-hmm. um, I thought, well, having another 100 board games will be enough. And uh, the thing is, I always bought books and uh, records like vinyl or uh, mm-hmm. CDs later. Uh, but board games take up a lot more volume. Yeah. So... <laughs> You you need to have a limit, or, or well, the house will put a limit on it. <laughs> and um, I thought another hundred will have two hundred games. When will we ever play them? So that will be enough. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it changed through the years because now I'm close to uh, five hundred <laughs> games, I think. So four hundred just for myself. T- talking to people like you makes me feel so much better. Yeah. <laughs> so, main reason to have me here. I think when I first started, Roger, I'll come to you in a moment. I think when I first started uh, board gaming seriously, I think I, I had this mental figure in my head of about fifty games. Mm-hmm. I thought that you know, there, there's three hundred and fifty days in the year or thereabouts. If you're playing games regularly, fifty games. There's, you can't really play more than fifty games in a year. If you if you've got a job, you've got other commitments in life, and I and I thought, yeah, that's fifty is plenty. I'll, I'll I can easily keep under fifty, and then at some point that I, I mean, I never made the decision, but I some, <laughs> somehow that 
number 50 changed to 100 without me even realising. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I'm sure it used to be 50, but now I'm thinking of this 100 number. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then a few years ago when I, I revamped my uh, my home office and I got some more shelving put in and that was where the board games were going, the, the number became less important and it was more about can it fit in those shelves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a saying among science fiction fans that there are three sizes of book collection. The the one where you have the number of books, the one where you have the shelf feet of the books, and the one where you have a structural survey done for the weight of the books. <laughs> I know I do last summer, Roger, when you and I held the the More Games Than Time auction, which we mm. might have to repeat at some point. Yeah. Um I sold a few games to somebody in one of the clubs here locally. And they said, Oh why these are good games, why are you getting rid of them? And I said, well, you know, I know they're good games, but I'm not playing them and I don't have the shelf space for them anymore. Mm. And he said, well, surely the solution then is you just buy more shelves, don't you? <laughs> this is perfectly serious. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my, my limit is the size of the room the games live in. Uh, yeah. And, and that is pretty much full. As it is, they're not all on the shelves because the shelves are full. Wait, uh, he's um, He's recently retired. When I went to deliver those games to him, he had the builders round. <laughs> and was doing something that we all dream of, but is very rare in Europe, I think, of having an extension built with a games room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what were your your limits, Roger? Well, yeah, it is basically it, it should be what fits on the shelves in the games room. It is in practice what fits on the shelves plus a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I am, tr- I'm sure we've mentioned this before. It, it seems to be really quite difficult to get rid of games. Um, yeah. If, if it's a thing that's in demand, then fair enough. But if it's, you know, it was okay. It, people were a big fan of it ten years ago. Uh, yeah. I've, I've got a copy of Alien Frontiers, for example, which is not yeah. a bad game. It's no. Reasonably rated on BGG. It, it's, it's still played regularly at my local group. Yeah, I, I'm not a great fan, but I've, I've got this box and it's got all the expansions in it, mm. and nobody wants it. Yeah. So, I think you're, you're right in that when I said about cycling through collections. I think um, I think that's a lot easier when you first get into the hobby and you're trying the games that everybody's talking about, either something that's hyped up now or is a, a classic like Ticket to Ride or Catan that maybe when you've been playing board games for a few years, you're not that interested in playing them. But there are hmm. still new people coming into the hobby that have heard of those games that want to play them. Yeah. Once games get a, a bit older and again, like, I was just talking about with the auction last year, there were very good games that I was getting rid of that I I wasn't getting rid of them because they were bad games. It was just because I was having to make tough decisions on the size of the collection sure. based on the space that I have. But other people, you know, they, they aren't the new hotness, so they aren't attracting the same interest. And you can go onto Board Game Geek and look and say, oh, this should be worth, I don't know, £50, £90, whatever it is. But if there aren't the people out there looking for it, it's not going to shift. Yeah, somebody paid £90 for it six months ago, but he now has a copy, and the next yeah. person who wants it hasn't turned up yet. Um, yeah. a, th- a thing that I have tried, at least, is say, OK, I'll just have one of each sort of mechanic that I enjoy. So, you know, one deck building. Mm. Uh, Does that work? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, particularly the um, deck construction side of thing, where I now have uh, Ashes and some Netrunner and some um, Sakura Arms. Yeah. I think and, that, and any completely... of those could, I suspect, satisfy the deck construction play urge. And if I gave it enough time, it probably would. But I actually like all of them. 
There's well, not, somebody. Not so there's somebody on the One Player Guild who posts regularly, and I seem to remember. And I, I, I might be making this up, but I seem to remember they have a hard limit of twenty <laughs> games in their collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do do that on the lines you're suggesting of, I have a worker placement game. I do not need another worker placement game. And I kind of get that. I know Yart Willem shares a weakness with me for Uwe Rosenberg games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forget about worker placement games. I could not limit myself to one Uwe Rosenberg game. No, and it's... For me, it's not... Uh... I, I wouldn't look at it that way because when I listened to music a lot and went mm. to concerts, I wouldn't have one metal CD in my collection. No. And <laughs> w- w- no, uh, one folk music CD in my collection. Yeah. It doesn't work that way for me. No, I think that's uh, a really good analogy. There, there have um, been one or two. Um, for me, and I'm, I'm not saying this is true for anybody else, but for me, uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue does everything that Pandemic does in terms of a, a co-op game. And I, I, that, and I strictly enjoy it more. So I think I got, that, Pandemic was one of the first I got rid of. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's valid. And I think you know, this is going to be different for different people. I think there uh, you, you will always be, when you've got a, a size of collection where you are having to trade things out to make room for others, there will always be a, well, I would normally rather play X than Y. Therefore, Y will have to go. So mm. you do make these comparisons between mm-hmm. games, and I think you know the 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 idea of worker placement games and um, deck building games are an interesting. I know you said deck construction, but <laughs> well, yeah, but um, deck, so, constru- deck, deck building and worker placement are a sort of interesting illustrative point for me, where I've always had several worker placement games because I enjoy them and I enjoy exploring the differences between them, yeah. the mood, the setting, all those things that, that they they speak to me. Deck building, I did for a period of a year go down to one deck building game. Mm. And I thought, I'd reached this stage with deck building games where, to me, most of them felt very mechanical. And I wasn't feeling the theme, the setting, any of those things. And they were sort of interchangeable for me. Yeah. So I stuck with the one that I enjoyed most, with the theme that I enjoyed most. And that was it. I do now have two in my collection. Again, I enjoy those games a bit more than I did. But that that you know, there's an example of essentially there was a mechanism where I felt like I had one in my collection, I didn't need another, and that will vary between different people. Yeah, and but these days, a lot of the time, I, I look at a game on the shelf and think, when did I last play this? That was ages ago, and and then I tr- I try to go to the next step, which is you know, if I had people over right now, would I want to play this? Would I take this off the shelf? Mm. And if the answer is no, well, you know, maybe I don't want to own it anymore. Um, something like that, Quantum, which uh, is quite an enjoyable game, but it was just never quite the game I was in the mood for. Yeah. So I managed to find somebody at a, um, in the Essen trade who actually wanted it. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to just throw out a game. I'd like the idea of get going to somebody who actually wants it. Mm. That this this seems to be quite hard to achieve, even, mm. even if you just want the thing for post want the postage cost. But do you think uh, you need to play a game regularly? Because I've got a lot of books I've read just once or twice, and I I don't care yeah. that they're on my shelf. I really 
No. I really don't. I, and I, when I walk into the room, I'm glad to see those uh, books on the shelf. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I, that's something I really push back on, this idea that you see sort of um, pushed around sometimes. That, oh, you've got to play a game sort of, you know, X times. You've got to play it a couple of times a week, a couple of times a month, whatever it is, or you should get rid of it. I think that very much depends on the game. If it's... Um, there are so many things that go into it. If it's a small card game, then you could argue that it's not taking up much shelf space. I don't need to play it that often. Mm-hmm. Mm, I... The the other side of that, you could have a big box game that takes hours and hours and hours to play. And maybe for that reason, again, sharing an interest with Yark Villain. Apart from Uwe Rosenberg, we both enjoy the original Warhammer Quest. Yeah. yeah. I, I have not played that game in 12 months. And not because mm-hmm. of desire. I know that I want to sit down and play a campaign and binge on that game again. And I might do that for a couple of weeks and then it will sit on my shelf again for a year, two years, whatever it'll be. And to me, that's absolutely fine. I don't need to be playing that game every week to justify having it in my collection. It's the joy that it brings me when I do play it and the potential that it exists when I see that box on the shelf. That brings me pleasure. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, as uh, Yap Willem said earlier, it's that they, games are big compared with books or CDs, which similarly one might say, I, I like to have it, I, li- I like to use it very occasionally. I mean, my, my Firefly box is larger than my torso. Mm. <laughs> and yes, it's a nice game, and, and I'm not planning to get rid of it because, because it's a game I love. Mm. But I haven't actually played it for quite a while. That 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 is one where yeah, if the right people came over, I would absolutely be getting it out and making an event out of it. So, yeah, I'm I'm surprised you haven't played it in a while. I know how much you love that game. <laughs> it's it is soloable, but it's not very soloable. It's not it's yeah. not it's not really at its best. So, it is a matter of getting the right people who have many hours to spend. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's not to say there aren't games that I've fallen out of love with. That I think, you know, I love this game. This is brilliant. And then I reach a point for whatever reason where I think, actually, I've, I've got as much out of this as I'm ever going to. I don't think I'm going to be playing this again. Hmm. So again, you know, different, different games, different contexts, but I would push back on the idea that to keep a game in your collection, you must be playing it regularly. Yeah. I, I, well, it depends on your personal situation. For, for me, I would like to think that. It's at least potentially going to get played. I don't want to keep it just mm. as an ornament or a memory. But No, but as I say, it's that, that potential that exists. When you see that box on your shelf, if you go, oh, I'd love to play that. Or, I, I remember playing that and it'd be great to play it again. Any of those, it's, it's that potential feeling. So according to BGG, I have uh, 164 games, not counting expansions. That's, that's probably slightly more than me, but I'd say that and and again, you know, our guest is helping us here. I, I'd say it's <laughs> not not unreasonable. It feels like too many for the space I have to put them in. Um, it feels like too many for the space you have to put them in. And probably if you were speaking to somebody that wasn't in the hobby, they'd be absolutely flabbergasted that that many board games even exist, let alone that you own them. Yeah, uh, that that's definitely part of the early acquisition phase. You know, somebody comes along thinking there are maybe 10 board games and then, yeah. but, oh, wow. But, we started this discussion talking about phases, and we haven't really touched on that. But what would you describe as the the phases of building a collection, Roger? Um, 
for me, I think at least it was a certain amount of I will, yeah, I will, I will buy everything I've enjoyed, mm-hmm. and then then hang on a minute, I don't really have any space left. What what am I going to focus on? I mean, I I know people who decided they are big fans of a particular mechanic, so they will have a bunch of things that are variations on that. And mm. I think it would be fair to say you, the Uwe Rosenberg section of your collection, for example. I mean, there there yeah. are I, I know other people who who are fans of specific designers. Mm. Um, I'm trying to be vaguely generalist, but stuff I enjoy. Um, there are some games that I th- I think try to demand your entire game hobby time. Uh, in my experience, anything involving painting miniatures, it wants to be the game you play. And the the classic example of this is Magic. There are lots of people who play Magic and nothing else. Yeah, because or, or there's there's so Warhammer. much. Yeah, because there's so much of it out there that any time mm. you want to do it, you can find a game. Yeah. Um, or there's all the preparation and stuff to do. One of the things I like, I've liked about Ashes, I think we've mentioned in passing before, is that there are people who do the tournament scene, but there are also lots of casual players mm-hmm. who are just sort of gradually working through it and enjoying it. So that that's one reason that stays, even though I don't get to play it as often as I'd like. And at this point, it's it's very much... I cannot have the canonical perfect board game collection, but I can have the right board game collection for me. That sounds like the perfect place to be. And and I know enough other gamers that, um, yeah, e- even if the thing that everybody must have is not in my collection, it'll probably be in theirs. Yeah. How about you, Yarp? The point I'm now at, um... or, the, the, or the your your journey, my as journey, it were. My, the faces. Mm. Well. Um, when I started out playing solo and uh, trying to find out more about what kind of games can you play solo, of course I went to Board Game Geek and uh, read a lot of reports on uh, solitary games on your table and uh, threads about games, etc. And everything uh, is talked about as it's an amazing game. So Uh, when you start out and you don't know your own preferences yet, um, mm-hmm. you buy a lot of different kind of, yeah, mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, authors, designers, I mean, yeah, and, and see whatever is a good fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned out that I think I enjoy like 80% of what's available. <laughs> um, and, which you can see as a problem, but the main it's a good problem. <laughs> the main thing I found out is what I like is um, new experiences, and mm-hmm. I'm always curious for um, yeah. trying a new game, uh, which is why I'm not that bothered that I've got games that are played less than ten times. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say for anybody, if you play a board game ten times. That's a game you really enjoy and love. I, yeah, well, I, I reckon most people do not buy a board game and play it ten times without moving it on. Well, that, that's the principle behind Pandemic Legacy, isn't it? That if you're not going to play it more than, what is it, 12 to 24, mm. then the game might as well have that lifespan anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I do, there are so there are games that I've played uh well, much less than ten times, like mm-hmm. 
two or three. But most of the time when I learn to play a new game, I will often leave it on the table and get to those ten plays in a relatively short time. So, uh, but but I'm always uh, curious for new things. So I never got out of the first phase. I'm afraid of um, <laughs> looking around, getting excited about everything that uh, you see. And yeah. uh, um, well, just like I used to spend all my pocket money on uh, CDs. I'm mm -hmm. now spending all of it on board games, yeah. and uh, I, I don't really mind that much, except for what I said, the volume is much bigger, so uh, stuff needs to leave the house again. Uh, like I said, I went from 100 to 500, but in the same time in those six years, uh, about 200 games left the mm -hmm. house as well, uh, because I'm always looking for new yeah. things. Yeah. And I can't place them ever. I have got boxes on the floor already, so yeah. I think my my journey was probably had some parallels with both of yours. I think when I when I first started, when I first came back to the hobby, I should say, um, as a, as an adult, I did what what Yarp did, what a lot of people did. Um, I watched a, a lot of principally Dice Tower videos on YouTube mm -hmm. going through all of their top tens and all that kind of thing. Um, Vada was in there as well. Um, uh, and I've started to build up this list of, oh, that looks really interesting and exciting. And I could play that with, with my partner and with some friends and we could have these board game nights. Tabletop with Will Wooten was a thing then as well. Mm -hmm. And I sort of built up a list then of games I wanted to play. Um, and then I discovered the One Player Guild on Board Game Geek. Mm-hmm. And found out that solo gaming was a thing beyond only them. And then I, so I started to say, well, I, I want to play, you know, I, I, by that point, I think I'd realized that infusing other people about board games wasn't that easy for me that, you know, that my friends and my partner weren't that interested in playing these games with me. So I started to go down the solo games rabbit hole and again, building up a list of, I want to play this game and this game and this game. And then I started to, shape my tail understand my tastes more that um both in terms of the the designers i was interested in the publishers that tended to publish games that i i enjoy the mechanisms that i enjoy um and also i think importantly uh posters on board game geek and board game media for want of a better word podcasters youtubers understanding where whose tastes coincided with my mm -hmm. own and where they yeah. differed from my own. And that then enabled me to move to a phase where I could start to rule some games out. And just because so many people were saying, oh, this is a fantastic game, I love it, and go, well, actually, yeah, it's probably not for me. And I'll still, like Yarp, I enjoy new experiences. And I would normally choose to play a new game over an old one. If ever somebody offers me, I have a general rule that if I'm at a, a board game convention or a board game group and somebody says, do you want to play X? If I haven't played it before, or even if I have played it before, I'll, I'll normally say yes. I'll, I'm not going to yeah. turn down a game of anything. Because I think it's this is a very good principle. Building up my, my experiences, my board game vocabulary. Um, I think all of those things are, are valid. Um, but then, the the rate of acquisition died down as we were talking earlier um this thing of i've when would i play y when i've got x 
that starts out, I think, in your own collection when you've bought two similar games and you can say, well, I like this game, but I like that other one more and I'm not sure when I would choose to play the other over this. Mm. After that, I've certainly reached a stage where I'm making that decision before acquiring the game. I think, yeah, I think I'd like that game, but I'm not sure how often I'd play it. When I, how often I choose to play it over this other game that I've already got and I know I love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying very hard these days not to buy anything that I have not actually played. It's not always possible, but you know, it's, if it's okay, I know and trust this designer, mm-hmm. then yeah, fair enough. But and obviously with solo games, it's more difficult. But at the very least, yeah. I will try to borrow it from somebody rather than. Yeah, it's definitely more difficult, and I think um, I don't know if, as solo gamers, we're maybe Yarp Villain might be able to agree or disagree with this as well. Maybe we're more susceptible to to pre buying hype, whether that's uh, an Essen release or a, or a Kickstarter campaign. Well, at least my problem was as. Um... Even if I didn't want to be a solo gamer, there was no board game club no. nearby. Mm. And I didn't have family f- f- apart from my wife, but mm. f- further away, like other relatives that played board games, didn't have friends like that. So it was a hobby I didn't share with anyone. Yeah. And, um, well, you'll have to buy something to, to get it on the table. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're more um, easily manipulated or easily uh, by, by enthusiast reports. I, I'm a lot on uh, Facebook now because I've got a, a Facebook group for uh, mm-hmm. solo players fr- from uh, Belgium and uh, the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, I didn't use Facebook that much, but now I do. Okay. Uh, and I see there are a lot of Facebook groups for people that play multiplayer as well. And they also have got their hypes and uh, mm-hmm. buy the next thing that's uh, available. And uh, yeah, it's mm. not just for uh, solo players. Okay. I was just thinking in terms of my my purchases over the last few years have shifted more to that they are, they are influenced by the hype. Absolutely. I think I've got those filters of I'm interested in these publishers, designers, mechanisms, themes, settings, and there, and everything that I buy has to be soloable. I think I have five games in my collection that are multiplayer games that I can't solo. Um, mm-hmm. but that, that idea of the hype definitely feeds into my purchases still. Um, but having said that, I think even there, this barrier, this, I know I'm restricted for space. I know I'm going to have to get rid of something to make space for something else, especially when Kickstarters turn up with boxes that are far bigger than anything else you're meant to be replacing. (laughs) And I think, um, I mean, there there are various reasons last year, including, you know, what was going on in my life. And we had a, a hiatus from the podcast for a lot of the year as well. But I only backed one game on Kickstarter all year. And that part of that, there was at least one other game that I'd been interested in following for a couple of years. And when it actually came to the campaign launching, I watched the playthrough and I thought, I like the look of that, but it's not exciting me. So maybe I don't need to to back it right now. And maybe I'll regret that in future. I probably won't because there'll be other games that come along and grab my attention after that. 
certainly for me a few years ago i I think about 2019, certainly pre-pandemic, I was suddenly realising, hang on a minute, I'm just not getting excited by this new Kickstarter game, even if it's a game that is in my general area of interest. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, your game is going to do that, but I already have a game that does that. Yeah. And why is your game better? And sometimes they are, of course, but, yeah. Yeah, There is that, I think, where, is is it jadedness? I don't know. I feel like it might be for me sometimes. You're looking at it and as you say, you're going, well, this thing that everybody's saying is so exciting and novel and new and interesting. I'm pretty certain I've seen that before. Hmm. And what I find with a lot of board games now, um, I would say over the last sort of three, four years, with the possible exception of last year when we did our best new to me games of the year, I think every year my get favorite new game to me of the year has been at least 10 years old yeah oh for for the um to kelly lee forum which uh, spun off mm. from the shut up and sit down forum originally uh we have the purple's choice awards and while we do have a best new game of the year we also have a best new game from a previous year that i only found out about this year mm-hmm. which i think is a lot more interesting most of the time and, and indeed a best new game from five years ago that stood the test of time. And, and yeah, yeah I, I find those more interesting to vote. Yeah, than... which is why we do it uh, for our end of year wrap up, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think what it is about those games for me, compared, I mean, we're getting slightly off topic here, I suppose. <laughs> Surely as, not. as is our fine tradition on this podcast. But what it is about those games for me, I think they're more focused in terms of what they do. I think a lot of modern games, they aren't being innovative even when people say they are, what they're doing is throwing a whole load of different mechanisms from different games together. And often, to me, that just ends up feeling like bloat. Yeah, you you, you like meat, you like cheese, you like ice cream. Here's a dish with all three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I suppose is you know, American cuisine, but maybe we shouldn't go into that. Hey. And, and I should say, this is even separate from the whole classic bloaty Kickstarter with 10,000 miniatures and so on, because as I know I don't have room for those, I don't do those at all. But e- e- even getting away from that, I think there's a there's quite a bit of, yeah, we're just going to put in more stuff. You see it a lot in Euro games now, where, you know, again, just going back to how we started this conversation with, uh, oh, I've got one worker placement game, I don't need another. A, a typical Euro game on, uh, on Kickstarter now will have worker placement, and action selection, and set collection, and route building, and and then and they just put all these mechanisms in one game. And to me, at least, I don't enjoy that more. Um, I don't necessarily find it confusing, but I do enjoy more a, a more streamlined, a more focused experience where I go into a game going, well, this is what I need to be doing in this game. This is what the game is asking of me. This is how the game works. And when you're playing it multiplayer, everybody around the table is, you know, you're playing the same game. What one of the goals I I have uh, when when I think about a a collection that I'm curating at all, which is not not a full time thing, is I'd like to have a game that that is a pure example of a particular mechanic. Yes. Uh, that yes. that also quite often suits my taste. But I'd say something like uh, Ink and Gold or Diamant, depending on where you're buying it. Mm-hmm. which is a pure push-your-luck game with some other bits that are also about pushing your luck, and there is basically nothing else to it. Um, mm-hmm. The Resistance, which is all about the social deduction, but it doesn't have... Uh, there are many people who like Battlestar Galactica, 
but for me, that's that's less pure because it has social deduction plus the other stuff, the resource puzzle. So that that a, a game that does one thing superbly well to the exclusion of all else is likely to stay in my collection. Mm. There's a, a largely forgotten game that Yarp Willem and I both love, Mercator. It's the the overlooked Uwe Rosenberg game. I think I borrowed that off you a few episodes. I, of that. Yes, yeah. you did. Yeah. We did a, a yeah, we did an exchange on that in a previous podcast episode. But in terms of pure focused gameplay, I mean. All you're doing in that game is picking up cubes and exchanging them for cards. <laughs> yeah. It, that that game would not be made now. That would be one mechanism in amongst half a dozen. I think they're still being made, games like that, but uh, probably by small publishers and mm. not, not getting uh, the, attention. Much, uh, the attention. Um, but there, uh, it has been a success to throw everything into a uh, pot and see what uh, mm. what comes up. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that there are no good games with lots of different mechanisms in that. That's patently untrue, but I do think it's reached the yeah. stage where that is. I say that 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 is um, passed off in exchange as something like innovation when it isn't yeah and, and, and it's reached a stage where ev- every game every major release now has multitudes of different mechanisms in it yeah. um possibly but not always with asymmetric gameplay as well mm-hmm. but i must say that the um i was very excited a few years ago when i discovered games by alexander pfister who throws mm-hmm. in a lot of mechanisms uh and just and still it's nice uh game when you play it uh, mm. uh, like the Great Western Trail or uh, uh, like now Sky Mines which is Mombasa but reskinned yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really like those games um, and I must admit the only one of his games I've played is Isle of Sky which is one oh. of the non-soloable games in my collection I've always enjoyed it mm-hmm. but his, his themes on his um, heavier Euros have always put me off so I've never Never investigated them. Yeah. <laughs> the the other thing that um, I I find lean, leans me against a collection is when something is the big thing. For example, Roll and Write over the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I have Railroad Inc. the great big coffin box. Yeah. I, I do not feel I need another Roll and Write game unless it does something amazing. I think. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's similar to what I was saying about deck builders for me earlier i think a lot of those games again to me other people might see it differently a lot of those games are about the mechanism not the theme or the setting Hmm. and therefore they are pretty interchangeable so if you've got one that you enjoy whether that's because it's slightly more complex or slightly lighter or because it's the theme that you enjoy do you need another one i don't know for for me at least, but, uh, I, I'm a very bad Euro gamer. I, I do care about the theme, even in a relatively abstract game. Um, that can make a difference for me. But again, generally, I'll, I'll keep the one with the theme I like, rather mm. than have the other as well. Yeah, well, as I say, that that was it for me in deck builders. For a year or more, the only deck builder I had in my collection was Apex Theropod, which is a, a theme I love, and I didn't see the need for anything else. <laughs> 
I mean, I've, I've played a bit of, uh, Hero Realms, which is basically Star Realms with a fantasy skin. There are some slight differences, but at the core, it's the same game. And I can accept that these are the same game. Mm. And yet, Star Realms, that makes me feel enthusiastic about playing it, and Hero Realms doesn't, just because I prefer the vaguely science, it's not even, you know, complicated science fiction, it's just generic science yeah. fiction versus generic fantasy. Yeah. Yes, it's important to understand about your tastes and, yeah, for, for me, as you know, you know, I'm the opposite. Fantasy, even generic fantasy, would always grab my attention and I'll enjoy it. And sci-fi, of whatever degree, will completely put me off. Mm. Which is a useful filter when I am looking at Kickstarter campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be the hot new mechanic of this year. We just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's... Oh, I was a little bit out of touch last year, but I feel like it's been a while since um, Roland Reich's took the industry by storm and were the thing. Mm. Probably do something. Is there a way to get back on topic? Phases of board game collection building? <laughs> I, I think the the thing I would say from my own experience is FOMO is, is a mocker. You can generally, unless you want the complete everything with the Kickstarter's extras in it, you can generally get it later. Yeah. It just may take a bit of finding. And the, and the, and the going out, let's face it, I'm, I, I have been a person who went out and looked for second-hand books and music, and and that that is fun in itself. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I used to love going into second-hand record shops. So the <laughs> whole long, long time, yeah. So so the, so the whole um, I, I must get it now because it's my only chance. Well, maybe sometimes that's true, but mm. even if even if you don't get it again, there'll be another one along in a minute, and, and, unless you. The, the number of times where I can say this, this is the specific example of this kind of game that I absolutely want, and at the same time I've never played it or seen it in the flesh, turns out to be quite small, and, and that is what Kickstarter needs. So, like, like you, I'm doing a lot less Kickstarter crowdfunding these days. I think even as we're saying we've reached a stage with our collections that, um, God, I still hate that word, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, we, we can make the we, we understand our own tastes and we know what we're interested in. I think there also has to be uh, a level of acceptance, as you say, with the number of games that are coming out now, where there are games that I'll go, I would really enjoy that game. I really want to play that game. I can't quite afford it right now, or whatever the criteria is. And maybe I'll get to play it in the future. Maybe I'll get to buy it in the future. If I don't, there'll be another game. Mm. And... Yeah, if I had to stop buying games this instant and play only the games that I own, I would be annoyed because there are still other games I haven't tried and I'd like trying new stuff, but I, w- I would not feel, you know, I, I, I don't have the games I want, I think. No, e- even as somebody that enjoys playing new games and new experiences, I'd yeah. be happy just playing the games I've got. But let's not do that. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd quickly start recycling podcast episodes, I think. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's been at least two years since we had a proper in-depth look at Warhammer Quest, so maybe I can try selling you that again. Yeah, seems fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but are there any sort of thoughts, ideas you'd like to to sum up with? About collecting? No. (laughs) Uh, You were talking about crowdfunding Kickstarters Mm. and... uh, when I was starting out with uh, 
finding my what games I liked, etc., and uh, uh, reading on Board Game Geek. Uh, the problem with crowdfunding games, of course, is that there's a short window of opportunity, and you'll have to make yeah. your uh, decisions fast. Mm. And I think when you start out, if we have, if we talk about phases of uh, collection building, um, you'll say yes easier uh, yeah. let's try this let's let's buy this um and especially when like me you've got 500 games uh it's not that important anymore um one thing what stopped me from uh, backing just about everything on kickstarter was um every time i uh saw something new on Kickstarter, it meant I couldn't buy uh, uh, a game in retail, let's say. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it took me two years before I had a Feast for Odin, just because I kept buying whatever whatever was more important, because I had to spend the money now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it, well, I was curious for that game, and uh, I knew mm. I liked the games by Hugo Rosenberg, so that, that was something. And I think now, uh, after COVID, and then there were logistic problems, and then uh, prices went up everywhere. It's uh, crowdfunding platforms aren't even interesting for me anymore uh, because I can't afford the games. They're yeah. always more expensive than buying games in retail, mm -hmm. buying games in online shops, uh, buying games from people that backed it, but. Uh, whatever mm. because you've got your shipping you've got your um, taxes you've got uh, customs and uh, also on kickstarter the trend was uh, more luxurious games uh, yeah yeah which I is think, something we've spoken about on a previous episode i think the the yeah. deluxification of board games yeah well for me it's um I, I can't afford to buy those kind of games, or, or mm -hmm. I made that decision. Of course, I could afford to buy one yeah. of those games, uh, the new Vito Lasada, instead of uh, four other games. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it, it, it changed a lot. Um, less impulse buys, uh, but as, uh, on the other hand, it's not like uh, there was a um, a real curve down in collecting like uh, I said in the beginning I've had this with music I've had this with books mm -hmm. I just spend my pocket money on board yeah. games and it's my way of yeah, getting new things on the table getting new experiences and that's something I like mm -hmm. so mm. yeah just th thinking about your comments on the, the whole you don't know much about it but you have to make the decision about buying it now this reminds me very much of my first trips to Assen you know, I, I will talk to the person demoing a game. I might play it for 10 minutes. Then I had to decide when to buy it. And a lot of those were, were definitely errors in terms of, yeah, it was fine, but I've sold it on now. Mm -hmm. I, I did not need to buy it at Essen and, tr and take mm -hmm. it home in the car and so on. Yeah, I think um, conventions, I, I've always... Uh... I've always made a list of games that I'm interested in before I go there and I've done some research about them mm. and really sort of seeing the game in the flesh, playing it is the 
the final pieces to making a decision rather than being introduced to something new for the first time. That's what I mostly try to do these days, though. One of the things I like about Essen is still, I've never heard of this game somewhere in the back mm. halls. It, it, it's one guy who, who personally publishes it. Yeah. I'm just not going to know about this if I don't look at it now. And that, that, even if I don't buy it, it's great fun. <laughs> yeah, there, there are those experiences, particularly at Essen, where you've, um, where you've got Japan games and some of the Taiwanese publishers come over and they sell it at Essen, but they don't really have any retail agreements with anybody in Europe so those are the only places to get them hmm. um, but even those I think they're the, those two as an example you can often find out something on Board Game Geek in advance even if there isn't a great deal of information yeah um, we've been talking now for about three quarters of an hour it's probably a, a sensible time to wrap up and I think we're all We've all shared fairly. I mean, your your question at the beginning, Roger, of um, you know, has our experiences of collecting board games? I said it again. I really hate that word. In it, I, I hate <laughs> saying board game collection and collecting board games because, to me, a collection is something that you stick on a shelf and you look at, mm. and that's not what board games are for. As much as I may have said earlier, you can see it on the shelf and it gives you pleasure. They're they're there to be played, and that's the thing. It's um, I think I prefer the word board game library. We've compared Yarp, yeah. Yarp Villain in particular has made the analogy to CDs and board and books throughout this discussion, and I think library is a much better word than collection. It's a resource where you can pull something down off the shelf, play it, and enjoy it and use it. It's not just stuck away gathering dust. And, and I think we we would all be quite happy to lend games to friends as well. And so that's again library more yeah. than collection. Sure. Yeah, and which isn't to say I've never received a, a game back damaged, but it, <laughs> yeah. I think you have to accept that. Um, yeah, we've all been through similar phases, I think, in building our board game libraries. We, we started off um, excited, trying everything new. Um, slowly started to be more selective in what we were acquiring um, to the extent that we're making active decisions to not acquire things more often than we say we want them. Um and that to a certain extent, that's been driven both by an understanding of our own tastes and what we like, but also by the space available to, to house our libraries. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any of us is having to choose between board games and food. We're sufficiently comfortably off that that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, space is still a thing. Yeah, it's an important distinction, I think. I mean, all hobbies are a luxury. Yeah. They're all expensive to some degree or another. Um board games you could argue are less expensive than some others but if you're going to carry on actively acquiring games throughout your enjoyment of the hobby then there is still that expense to consider yeah i mean i i've just just looking at my game collection just now and scanning through it apparently i've played rallyman gt 300 times uh, <laughs> some of those are on more on board game arena but you know i i have got good value out of that by anybody's uh, yeah measure yeah Okay. Well, unless anybody else has anything to add, I would like to thank Yarp Willem again for joining us. Yeah. yeah, it was nice. Thank you. Thank you, Yarp. You're welcome back anytime. If people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you or follow you online, where can they do that? Well, probably best uh, place right now is uh, the website. Athena mm -hmm. and I have got uh, solitairetimes.net and... Uh, well, I'm not the 
and I'll probably be back in uh, uh, the One Player Guild again uh, real soon. Yeah. Was, had a bit busy year, wasn't that active, but uh, I'm back at playing board games again, so I'll probably write about them again as well. It's <laughs> good to hear. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Well, thanks very much for joining us. As usual, we've uh, we've still got more games than time. But we're gradually working our way through the backlog and we don't have any Kickstarters <laughs> arriving at all. No, really. I, I think my backlog's growing. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to support us, we have uh, an online store where you can buy merchandise at, uh, I think it's tinyurl.com slash mgtt. There'll be links in the, the show notes. And uh, yeah, drop us a comment. Talk about what well, what would you like us to uh, deal with in the future. And yeah, so, you can find us on the forums at Takeli Lee uh, discussion Takeli Lee. But, but again, it'll be in the show notes. There we go. And uh, hope to see you next month. Thanks, Roger. See you all next month, gang. Okay?